Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankowski. Coming up, the president's Cancer Moonshot Initiative is inspiring cancer caregivers and researchers. We'll talk to the chief of medical oncology at Yale Cancer Center coming up. We'll also talk with the Manhattan Institute's Aaron Wren about why General Electric is headed from the Gold Coast to the hub. But first, a new report offers a detailed snapshot of civic engagement and community participation in our state. This index of civic health is compiled in part by Data Haven, the number-crunching group that we'll be featuring on our program as they chart our state's overall well-being. This new Civic Health Index is in partnership with the office of Denise Merrill, Connecticut Secretary of the State, who joins us today. If you want to join our conversation, 860-275-7266. Comment on our website, wnpr.org slash where we live. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. As we talk about the civic health of our state, uh, Denise Merrill, Secretary of the State of Connecticut, welcome back to the program. Thanks for being here. Thanks, John. So first of all, tell us about this index. How was it put together and uh, who came together to uh, get this data? Well, it's a coalition of groups who are interested in measuring the civic health of our state. And we can talk about what that means and why it's important. But the group included uh, our office, uh, a group called Everyday Democracy, uh, the National Conference on Citizenship, which is a a national congressionally charted group, and uh, Data Haven, which you already mentioned, uh, a group that helps crunch numbers. So we take take a, a number of measures, and this is done across the country. We are one of about 20 states uh, doing these sorts of measures in our state. There's a lot of ways that I can imagine what civic health might be, everything from whether or not people go to the polls or whether or not they're engaged in their local towns or cities. But, but how do you define it? What is civic health? Uh, civic health is exactly that, how well citizens are engaged in their communities, uh, how much they participate in the life not only of the community but of the life of the country, and its measure, uh, the most obvious measure is voting. Do you vote? Uh, but, you know, democracy doesn't begin and end on Election Day. It really has to do with everyday life and how people are relating to each other in their towns. In an election year, we really make it all about voting, though. I mean, we talk about the presidential election constantly, whether it's for sport or for something that actually matters down the road. And it remains to be seen how much it actually will matter down the road. I. I I wonder about these other things, these softer ideas of of civics and democracy, these things that are part of one's everyday life. Explain a little bit more about what you mean and some some of the hidden attributes of a civic life that that we might not think about as much as voting. Yeah, sure. Um, Actually, one of the things we did measure was, do you talk about politics? Um, Do you have uh, relationships with your neighbors? Do you know your next door neighbor? Do you work? More importantly, do you work with your neighbors on a local problem? Um, Do you have dinner with your family, which is actually one of the more interesting measures? And you may remember some of this if you remember a guy named Robert Putnam who wrote a book called Bowling Alone, which first started looking at the fact that American society was changing, that we're more isolated uh, because of the mobility. We don't live right next door, perhaps, to our parents or grandparents. And so what is that? What's the effect of that on democracy, you know, big D democracy in the sense that we need everyone participating to make a healthy society. And there's a lot of research that supports that. 
there's also a book more recently from a guy named Peter Levine, who I think you've had on your show perhaps uh, a while back, so, yeah. called uh, the book is uh, We Are the Change We've Been Waiting For. Mm. And, you know, so the idea is uh, uh, our world, our society is more healthy when everyone's involved and everyone's involved in the civic life of the country. This is a conversation that I've been having on an ongoing basis for a long time since I got to know Ralph Nader. This is something he talks about a lot, and he yes. laments the notion that we don't sit around uh, and argue over the dinner table about politics or that we don't sit around the coffee shop in our hometown and talk about the civic life of a community. And there's one part of me that says absolutely he is right, that is true, and I wish that we could get back to that place. And there's another part of me that says the ship has sailed and we are communicating with each other in such a completely different way that we cannot put that as the paradigm of what we expect the future of civic engagement to be. Where do you fall on that on that spectrum? Absolutely. In fact, one of the things we're trying to figure out is people are still relating to each other, obviously. You got Facebook, you got Twitter, you got a million different ways people are now communicating. And I think that's healthy. The healthy thing to do to me is say, okay, let's go where people are. Let's find out what's going on. And that is part of this index, trying to figure out if people are associating, even in very poor communities, which we already know is the biggest gap in Connecticut. It's still the biggest problem we have, which is this great diversity of communities. And, you know, we have very poor communities. Even in those communities, there's a lot of associating going on. There's volunteerism is alive and well. You know, so how do we capture that for the public life of the state? We're talking with Denise Merrill. She's the Secretary of the State of Connecticut about a new civic health index. If you want to join us with questions, 860-275-7266. A similar report to this came out back in 2011. Maybe now that we've defined a little bit about what we're talking about, maybe we can say a bit about what this index has told us and how things have changed maybe in the last couple of years in Connecticut. Uh, yes. Um, I think uh, there's a lot of data in here. Most of it has stayed relatively the same, but there are some notable things, I think. Uh, one of them is Connecticut's relatively high in most of these measures, uh, social measures included. Take volunteerism. There's a lot of volunteerism. There's a lot of charitable giving. We're much higher than the average in the country. Now, of course, you have to remember Connecticut's a very wealthy state. Maybe that explains the high charitable giving, for example. Um, but it has slipped a little. Now, whether that's the result of people working longer hours and harder and so forth, there's a lot of speculation you could do about why. But we have slipped a little in the area of volunteerism and charitable giving and that sort of thing. On the other hand, we're doing more talking to our families, apparently. This is, of course, self-reported. Um, and, um, you know, so there's so there's more going on in some ways at a sort of more um, really local level. And so that was interesting. Um, also, though, I see there's slippage in the voting, and we all know about this, and I've been talking about this for a long time, that slowly but surely our rates of voting are going down, and even relative to the rest of the country. So um, and especially groups of the 18 to 24-year-olds and minority voters, you know, communities where there are more poverty People are more disenfranchised than ever. And what can an index like this tell us about why that is happening? We can make a lot of guesses. I mean, the earlier things you were talking about suggest, well, it's a slow recovering economy. People are spending less money on charitable do donations. Maybe they're they're talking with their family more because they can't go out to the movies because they can't spend as much money. When it comes to things like voting, what's changing? What do you think is suppressing this number? Um you know, there's a lot of cynicism. You know, we've talked a lot about that, too. But I, I think rather than seeing this as, um, 
a way of, of trying to figure out what's going on because we could endlessly speculate about why these things are going on. I see it more as a as a guide. What should we be doing about the things that we're noticing? And I think it's more of a almost like a policy guide going forward. When you see things like a slippage in the voting, uh, lack of access to voting, and we can talk a little bit about what, you know, what we've done about that and what we need to continue to do. So I'm looking at this as kind of a blueprint for, okay, where are the areas we need some work? Well, it, this report does point out, though, that Connecticut has improved access to voting over time. And, and yes. maybe you can talk about that. What are the ways in which that has changed? We've certainly talked about them, and I think you and I probably agree on some other ways in which we can improve <laughs> access to voting even more. But how has Connecticut done in this regard? Well, we've done very well in the last few years because we have made a lot of changes. And we are one state that's moving toward more access to voting. Um, for example, Rock the Vote, which is a pretty well-known group that looks at access for young people. They're very concerned about the engagement of young people. Um, We were 49th out of 50 in the country um, in 2011 when we looked at this. And it was because, you know, our policies were not really conducive to a lot of access. And since then, we've gone up uh, on, by their estimation, 167%. And I think that's because they look at things like what we've instituted, online voter registration being one of them. We have like 40,000 people have already used the online voting registration system. It just makes it much easier, particularly for young people who are used to doing everything online. And then we have instituted Election Day registration, which, again, favors those people who are more mobile. Maybe they've moved. They forgot to change their address. They're not on the list anymore. So those kinds of policies, I think, have really improved our access to voting here in Connecticut. Election Day registration. But if I'm right, you still have to, if you want to vote in the upcoming primaries, you still have to do that in advance, right? You can't just say, show up at the polls on primary day and say, I want to register to be Democrat today. No, we don't have Election Day registration for primaries. That's correct. And we still have a um, you know single-party primary situation because it's ruled by party rules, as you know. And, and that's and we've talked about this before, and I'll just this will, I'll get in my little plug. If we really want to expand access in a state in which we have, a, you'd know better than I would the actual numbers, a much greater percentage of people who are unaffiliated than either Democrats or Republicans, it would make sense that an open primary system would allow more people to take part in this very important process. I mean, you've got millions of people across the country looking at what's going on uh, right now with the primaries and the Republican and the Democratic side and saying, I don't really have a dog in the fight unless I want to put a D or an R in front of my name. That's right. And in Connecticut, that's especially true. And, um, you know, of course, you can still register for party, even if you're unaffiliated, and then unregister after the primary. I think this is going to come up a lot this year because we have the prospect of two exciting primaries here. Um, and, you know, even though our primary is not until April, if you wanted, for example, to participate in, let's say, the Republican primary and you're a Democrat, you would have to change your registration by January 26th, which is coming right up. And it's I think right a up. lot of people don't know that. So yeah. you just say this so again this. in case people want to want to vote. January 26th is the cutoff to vote in the Connecticut primary to affiliate with a party? To change your registration. If you're unaffiliated, you can affiliate with a party right up to the last minute, really. But if you want to change from one party to the other, you have to do it three months in advance. And I think the reason for that is they don't want some group of Democrats kind of throwing the Republican primary, if you will, or something like that. So for whatever reason, that is the law. Three months in advance, you have to change your affiliation from one party to the other. That that would assume that either state party is organized enough to actually (laughs) pull off some sort of a coup like that. Um, According to this report, high income and college educated adults demonstrate better civic health than adults with lower income uh, or levels of education. This 
isn't terribly surprising in one way, but it points to another type of opportunity gap here uh, in people's ability to represent themselves. Talk about that piece of it and what we can do to change it. Absolutely. And I think that is going to be a big focus for my office in the coming year because, you know, presidential election is really an opportunity. Everybody's paying attention. We all know what, you know, Donald Trump had for breakfast, for example. We may not know who the mayor of our town is, but, you know, we, we everyone's following this. So it is an opportunity to go out and find those people who are eligible to vote, eligible to register, aren't even registered to vote. And there's there's a lot of those people out there. Um, it's an opportunity to do more with what we're already doing, which is reaching out to people through agencies. You know, years ago, a, a bill was passed called the Motor Voter Law. Um, you know, it's now maybe 20 years old. And agencies like the Motor Vehicles Department, Social Services Department, uh, even the Department of Corrections to re-enfranchise people who have lost their right to vote and have it back and maybe don't realize it, those are the areas where we need to reach out because we, we need to get these people back. Um, it, it doesn't just break down along socioeconomic lines. We know that uh, voter turnout amongst Latinos in the state is nowhere near what it needs to be. Um, there's probably a little bit of a language gap. There's probably a little bit of a cultural gap. What are the things uh, your agency in the state is working on to close some of these gaps right now? Oh, absolutely. We are doing outreach through we will have some uh, videos, for lack of a better word, in, in Spanish, talking about voting. I've been on the air on many Hispanic radio stations, which are widely used uh, throughout the community. Um, you have to remember in Connecticut, the largest portion of the Latino community is Puerto Rican. Therefore, they are eligible to vote. You know, you don't have to get into all those issues about citizenship and all that. And so um, I have someone in my office who's dedicated just to doing outreach, going out to those uh, groups and associations there's a lot going on at the grassroots level, and there's some really interesting efforts. Uh, here in Hartford, for example, the uh, Connecticut Library uh, did an effort where they did outreach to Latino voters, and they actually had incredible success. There's a group called uh, Vota, and it, they went out and actually canvassed the neighborhoods in Hartford and got people to register to vote and then went back a second time. And the voter turnout increased by about 20 percent in those uh, in those communities, in those neighborhoods where they had made that effort. So you can do it. You have to ask people. You have to ask them in. I think a lot of people in the uh, in those communities don't feel that much part of a, of the community. And I think we need to do more to get them in. I, I think a big part of the conversation that's been had uh, amongst many communities uh, across not just Connecticut, but across the country in the last couple of years Sometimes it has to do with race. Sometimes it has to do with economics. It's that, yeah, you can ask me to get involved, and then I get involved, and then the representation that I have seems to make no difference to my life whatsoever. Um, and, and again, very painting very broadly, we'll see everything from uh, the people of Michigan right now feeling as though their um, interests were not represented by their governor and their in their state uh, legislature uh, when it comes to their water supply in Flint, Michigan, uh, when it comes to the health and safety of African-Americans in some urban communities across America, they feel as though uh, government officials aren't on their side. And so how do you turn that? It's this notion that, yeah, it's cynicism, but it's, it's well-placed cynicism. It's cynicism based in the notion that I'm actually not getting represented, so why the hell show up in the first place? That's a huge problem. And, you know, it's not so crazy. I mean, let's face it, all of us feel a little bit like that. But the best thing you can do is make them understand that if you do join the political system, you're still better off having that right to choose your leaders. You're still better off than if you don't have that right. And then... You, 
heaven knows who you'll get. Um, but at least you have a chance. And also, I think it's it's really healthy for people to kind of get involved. Then they begin to understand that, yes, you can have an impact, largely uh, through groups. I mean, and that's why we focus a lot when we're doing this work on association. Because, I mean, to be honest, one person can't make that much difference all by themselves. But as a group, you can make a big difference. And, you know, it it takes learning. You have to learn how to be in a democracy. It's And a lot of our children aren't learning that anymore either, which is the other reason that this year I would like to focus on an educational program because, again, this is the presidential year. Everyone's paying attention. So I'm working with the Department of Education to do something that will recognize schools and children and teachers who are doing that community work, who are perhaps going to the polls with their parents. You know, I think back to that campaign against smoking where all the kids went home and said, Mom, you're smoking. This is very bad for you. And, you know, it made an impact. So, you know, really make the kids begin to understand at a very young age that activism counts. Uh, a caller from uh, Coventry, Susan, uh, called up to mention just that. And I want to turn quickly because we just have a few minutes left. You, you just got back from a trip to China. Why were you in China? What were you doing there? I was there representing the state uh, because we had just acquired uh, one of our companies, Kaman, and actually it's K-A-M-A-N. I always thought it was Command, but it's a big corporation in uh, Bloomfield. Just we got a contract for two firefighting helicopters with China, and it's quite a big deal. It's a very large contract with promise of more, and I think it just uh, is our expression of, yes, we're supportive. I w- it was an interesting trip because many states uh, have quite a presence in China because they're they're anxious to do business with us. You know, I think that exporting and importing is one of the great areas where Connecticut businesses can get a lot more business. And, um, you know, we don't do enough of it. We're, we're trying to be helpful in terms of helping our companies get um, business in China and other countries as well. I, I, I should ask in the context of something we're going to bring up later on in, in the program, with the, the news that General Electric is leaving, and not just because, you know, the high cost of living here in Connecticut, for God's sakes, they're going to Boston, where the cost of living is as high as any place in the world. So it's not just about taxes. It's not just about costs. It has to do something from what we hear from GE about being part of, of a hub of innovation and a, a thriving atmosphere where there's colleges and universities and lots of people making stuff. And I guess the, the worry is that businesses like Command in Bloomfield might be like GE, wanting to be on the front edge of technology, wanting to be in a state that is going to lead in that way. Do you have concerns after a trip like this and in meeting with companies like that and seeing what's happening with GE that Connecticut might not be positioned as well as they could be to uh, maintain some of these these jobs? I think we could do more, but I was actually quite struck with the opposite. I think when I was in China, um, I realized there's a lot of there. We have a lot of capacity here. We have a lot of smart people. We have a lot of small, even a lot of manufacturing still going on. A lot of our component parts. Uh, technology that we're selling. We have um, a lot of small companies. I met with a, a large recycling company in China that has just bought some technology from one of our small firms in Danbury, actually. And what they have is a system to dispose of e-waste, which is essentially, you know, think a billion people with a billion cell phones. Mm -hmm. And you've got to extract all those heavy metals and stuff. Well, this company uh, has a technology that does this in a very innovative way. There's a lot of innovation in Connecticut. I mean, in China, they're impressed with us, you know, and the more we can do to reach out the way I did and the way the governor has gone over and tried to, you know, be a presence because they're very impressed when government officials show up. That is a signal to them that we're serious. 
and that we want to do business with them. And they are anxious to do business with, with America. They're very, it's, they're very interesting entrepreneurial people. And all that entrepreneurism has been somewhat unleashed in the last four or five or ten years. And um, I think it's a great opportunity. The scale of the market over there is just hard to imagine when you're tiny little Connecticut. But we have a lot of assets that we could do better with. And I think we're, we're, we're right up there with uh, a lot of other places. Uh, Denise Merrill is the Secretary of the State of Connecticut. Thank you for sharing some information about your trip to China and also the civic health of the state. Uh, good to see you. Thanks for coming in. Yeah, thanks, John. When we nice come when we come back, the president is making a moonshot to try to cure cancer. He's putting the vice president in charge. We're going to meet with somebody from uh, Yale Cancer Center to talk about what this means and how it's inspiring the cancer community. That's coming up next to where we live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. If you caught last week's State of the Union address, you might recall President Barack Obama endorsing Vice President Joe Biden as the leader of a new moonshot initiative to cure cancer. I'm putting Joe in charge of mission control. For the loved ones we've all lost, for the families that we can still save, let's make America the country that cures cancer once and for all. What do you say, Joe? Dr. Roy Herbst is a professor of medicine. He's chief of medical oncology at Yale Cancer Center in the Smilo Cancer Hospital. He joins us by phone today to talk more about the vision outlined in President Obama's address. What exactly does it mean to cure cancer? How long might that take? And how excited is he and the rest of the uh, cancer community? Dr. Herbst, welcome to Where We Live. Thanks for joining us. Uh, Thank you. First of all, what's your understanding of the Cancer Moonshot Initiative? What does that mean to you? Well, um, I was thrilled to see it in the State of the Union address the other night, and I believe the idea is that in order to tackle a problem as difficult as cancer, where so many people die each year, we need to work in a collaborative way with increased resources and tackle a problem much like we did uh, many years ago when we tried to send a man to the moon, really take people with all different uh, uh, you know, expertise, you know, uh, do um, laboratory work, bring it rapidly to the clinic, because really what we want to do is try to find the best therapies for patients. And we're in a very exciting time with this new science, but it's taking too long to bring that science to bear on human lives. So by focusing in on this way and making it the goal to really cure some of these very difficult to uh, treat cancers, that's, that's really exciting. So why is it taking so long to actually bring some of these, these really good pieces of work to bear on human lives? I mean, why, why is it taking as long as it has so far? Well, um, I'll tell you, there are, there are some great advances recently, but, but cancer is very complex. Every cancer is a bit different. So I'm an expert in lung cancer. I lead the lung cancer group here uh, at uh, Smile Cancer Hospital, Yale uh, uh, Cancer Center. And I can tell you that you know, if I see 100 patients, each of them might have a slightly different variant of the disease. The, 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 the cancer is growing because of different uh, drivers. There are, there are different things that turn one person's cancers on versus off versus another. So, so really you need to understand each cancer. That's what we call personalized cancer therapy. Use the tools that we now have to look at the DNA and understand what's, what's, what's right and wrong about that DNA and then match that patient to the right drug. But you can imagine this takes a, a great deal of effort and time. You need to understand the cancers. That's being done. You also need to develop the drugs. That's being done. 
A lot of it's done in academic centers. A lot of it's done in the private sector with pharmaceutical companies. And now we have to bring these public-private partnerships together with the government helping to drive this and really all work toward a common goal. So ask, how can we now use all the resources we have, the best science, bring these uh, new therapies from the lab to the patient and show patient benefit? Now we're seeing examples of that right now. One thing in the last uh, several years, and it was talked about um, uh, in, in some of the articles around the State of the Union, is immunotherapy. That means using the body's own immune system to tackle cancer. And we're seeing great advances in lung cancer, in melanoma skin cancer, in kidney cancer, uh, and many other cancers that you can actually use some new drugs that, that relieve uh, um, blockages on the immune system to allow cancers to shrink and for people to live longer. The amazing thing is it's showing benefit, for example, in lung cancer where it's helping about 20 to 25 percent of the patients. So now we have a great, a great challenge ahead of us. What about the other 75 percent? And to do that, we need to bring science to bear. We need to bring people, volunteers, clinical trials, and really tackle this problem as a collaborative effort. No person, no group is going to be able to do this alone. We're all going to have to come together. And I believe the moonshot with the vice president as the mission controller, the idea is that they're going to use the, the resources of, of the government, already are, you know, with all the funding that we get from the National Cancer Institute, but now to really focus on, 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 on tackling these problems. And it's already being done, but now it's, it's a renewed effort, and I'm very happy that our center here at Yale Smile Cancer Hospital will be part of it. Has the funding piece of this been one of the biggest challenges, or has it been more the coordination? We, we've got the money, but we haven't been able to put it in the right places, or is it really just a lack of funding so far, and that's what this initiative will help to provide? Well, it's both. You know, certainly um, the, the funding available for this uh, from the National Cancer Institute uh, is, 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 is significant, though it really um, hasn't been growing in recent years. Um, about 10 years ago, there was a, a doubling uh, of, the, of the funds from the national government, and that, that flattened out and actually in real dollars with inflation uh, actually went down for a while. So it gets to the point where if someone writes a research grant, the chance of it being funding is 7%. So that's, that's a very low number, and I believe that that will go up. There's, there's uh, proposed to be more money in the, in the government this year uh, uh, in the budget for doing uh, uh, research. So that, that's good. Of course, a lot of private foundations are involved in this. A lot of companies that make drugs are involved with this. So certainly more money and more resources will help. But it really involves getting the best minds, the best new techniques involved. So if we're going to understand a cancer and understand the, the workings of it, we need to use technology and bring that technology to understand uh, the sequencing of a tumor, the genes that are on and off, or understand you know, what's causing that tumor to grow. So that, that involves bringing groups together, partnering, collaborating. Let me give you an example. So one of the trials that I lead is something called the Lung Cancer Master Protocol. So lung cancer is the number one cause of cancer death around the world, and certainly in the United States. About 200,000 people die each year of this disease. And one, one type of lung cancer called squamous cell lung cancer, which is about 30% of the cases, there have been very few new therapies in the last 20 years. So what we're doing is we have a trial, and it's being done through this type of mechanism, a public-private partnership, where we're taking patients with this disease in a trial that's sponsored by the National Cancer Institute. And what we're doing is we're bringing these patients in from 900 sites around the United States, and we're taking their tumor, we're sending it to a central facility, and we're getting a readout, a fingerprint, of what, what, what's, what's causing that cancer to grow. And then working with drug companies, pharmaceutical companies, we have clinical trials. And what we're doing is we're matching at the right time the right patient to the right drug. So that's really personalized medicine. That type of infra infrastructure, you can imagine, 
takes not only money and resources, but also people and coordination, and then getting the word out to the patients, which I hope you know, programs such as yours are doing. So this is what we need to do. We have so much uh, uh, advancement that's, that's occurred in the last several years, and now we need to find a way to sort of bring it together so that it's going to help more patients now. And I think this, this moonshot idea is going to do this uh, very well. It's going to make it, make it even more common and help even more people uh, to work together to tackle this very vexing problem of cancer. You mentioned uh, clinical trials and how important those have been to all the therapies that you've developed to this point and what you're working on right now. The more you get into personalized medicine, obviously it, it makes sense that clinical trials will get that much more complex. You need to find the right patient for the right drug. Maybe you can explain a little bit more about just how much more complex that is in the world of personalized medicine than it has been for the broad-based therapies that we used in the past. Um, absolutely. So um, in the past, you know, we would do clinical trials, and we still do some, where every patient is eligible for that trial, and they get uh, the standard of care uh, versus a study drug. However, now that we're doing a more personalized approach to medicine, it might be, for example, only 5% of patients, 5 out of 100, will actually have the specific marker that allows them to be eligible for, for a trial. So here I am in New Haven at Yale University uh, at our Smile Cancer Hospital. We see thousands of patients, but I can't possibly see enough patients if it's only 5% of patients who are eligible for this trial that I can do this study alone. I have to partner with uh, uh, institutions to the north and the south and throughout the United States. So that's what's becoming uh, even more important, that if we're targeting 5% of the population, and that, that's worth doing because there's a, there's a mutation in lung cancer called ALK, ALK. It only occurs in 5% of the population, but if you have that abnormality, there are drugs that are pills, they're oral drugs, easy to take, where someone has a chance as high as 70 or 80% that their tumor will shrink and they can be on these drugs for long periods of time. So we've got to find those patients in that population and treat them. And for those that don't have that abnormality, we then have to ask what, what other abnormalities do they have and what other drugs there are. And that's where it gets a little bit more complicated because we, we still have to find those drugs and we have to find those markers. But that's what, what, what the research and collaborative research is doing, understanding uh, tumors in more depth in the, in, the, in the basic science lab and then bringing that to the clinic. What's very interesting to me over my career, and I've been doing this for quite some time now, almost 20 years, is that now the lab has become the clinic. So we actually, in the, in the clinic, we're trying to understand how to use drugs, but also combinations of drugs. Because one added complexity of this is sometimes one drug isn't enough. Tumors know how to evolve and how to become resistant. So we have to use two drugs or even three drugs. And to do that, we have to monitor in real time in the clinic what's happening. So um, we can do that in many cases very non-invasively for the patient, where we can take blood samples before and after, and we can analyze it in our labs here at Yale, and we can understand why is this patient responding, that's great, but why is another patient not responding? What are the resistance mechanisms? And if we understand that, then we can understand what the next combinations are that we can use. So that's a very exciting part of this, and we're doing this with, with funding from the National Cancer Institute. In our lung program, we have a grant called the SPORE here, which has been very helpful to this. But we also receive a great deal of philanthropy and, of course, you know, uh, a lot of contributions from the hospital, and, and we're re really working hard to try to you know, raise the bar in this disease. And I would hope that, and I can tell you all my colleagues are inspired by, the, by this, this right now, um, a, group, um, a group from the American Association of Cancer Research, which I'm involved with, I uh, went to the White House to meet with Joe Biden uh, last week when my, my colleague here from Yale, Pat LaRusso, was part of that group. So we're really, we're really very excited uh, that, that the, uh, the White House and the government you know, 
more than ever is, is, is working closely with us. Well, uh, well, and I'd like to ask you, uh, before we run low on time, too, uh, about the, the inspirational aspect of this and, and the metaphor of the moonshot. I'm just thinking about the ways in which this is similar and dissimilar from, from that. In his State of the Union address, the president made reference to the fact that we had uh, fallen behind in the space race, that the Russians had gotten Sputnik uh, into space before us, and it, it prompted our action, and the goal was to, to put a man on the moon. But we knew that there would be any number of ancillary benefits from that, that we would have to put together the, the brightest and the best minds and interesting combinations, and that there would be things spun off from that moon landing that, that putting someone feet on the moon wasn't necessarily the most important thing that was going to be accomplished. I think that the difference here, though, is is that there's a very clear mandate that we're going to cure cancer. That's a little something different, isn't it, as far as an end goal? Because that sounds like something that's incredibly far away still. Right. And, and, and we have to you know have realistic expectations. Cancer is many diseases, as I mentioned, um, many different uh, sites of origin, even within those sites is a great deal of heterogeneity. The, the cancers are very different. But, you know, the goal being to, to take some of these cancers, at least, and to find ways to treat them so patients can live for long periods of time with good quality of life. You know, we want to find drugs that are more specific, more laser-guided, more personalized, so that they work better and they're less toxic. There's still an uphill climb, and, and I would say that this, this approach right now, you know, if, if we can just find, you know, in, a, in, in some cancers, new technologies for diagnosis, for understanding the genomic makeup, for matching the patients to the right drugs, developing new drugs based on, on science and technology. You're right. A lot will come out of this that, 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 that will help other aspects of, of medicine and science and, and, and cancer research. You know, we're not, we're not behind the rest of the world right now. I can tell you from my travels that, you know, the, the United States really is, you know, is one of the best places to practice medicine, in my opinion, and, and we have great resources, but we can always have more and, and you know, I think that we're going to have to sort of look at this in a fresh way. So if we keep doing incremental work and we, 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 we do similar things to what we're doing now, that, that, that will help. But we need to bring people into this field from the informatics uh, side, you know, who understand, you know, systems approaches to cancer and can look at, at, at how are we going to combine agents together. Uh, we, we're bringing immunologists now into cancer, how we're using the power of the immune system to target cancer. We have to think about early detection of cancer. You know, one of the best ways to, to treat cancer is to prevent it from ever happening in the first place. That involves screening. There, there are issues regarding access of care here, too, that we, we need to talk about, getting cancer therapy to most of, of, of the nation. Now, there are many places in the United States where, where people don't even get what, what, what's considered the standard of care at some of the major medical centers. We need to get the word out. We need to provide resources to do that. So this is, I think this program you know, gets, gets people, you know, of course, uh, excited because I don't know anyone who hasn't in some personal way be, been, been affected by cancer. Certainly those of us that are cancer researchers like myself, I'm someone who sees patients uh, one day, works in the lab the next, uh, leads a, a translational program. We're inspired by the fact that the work we're doing is recognized. It's important. It's important to help people. And the technologies that come from this can be used to, to in, in medicine in general uh, to really raise the bar in the United States. Well, and that really was the last point I wanted to get to, and you brought this up already quite well, is, is this notion that when we brought together scientists from all over the country, from various disciplines, to figure out the, the complex ways in which we would get human life into space and then onto the surface of a, a moon orbiting our planet, 
um, it really did bring together multiple disciplines. And there is a sense, Doctor, that right now there is so much money to be made and there's so much ability for the smartest people in the world to go work for some company making some handheld device that is going to uh, be the next thing that is a is a consumer product, but those same people, if put to the task of curing cancer, might truly help you and aid you in a way that you haven't had before. Can you just talk that through a little bit? Because it really right. is—it's almost like going to war with cancer, and everyone's pulling pulling along. You know what I mean? Right. Well, well, think of it. You know, you know the physics and the chemistry that that's all resulting in the DNA sequencing machines that we use now. So, when I was a graduate student. Uh, uh, about 20 years ago, I know I sequenced maybe 200 bases of DNA, and it took me several weeks, and I read it manually. Now we can sequence uh, 25,000 genes. That can be done in a couple of days, and the results can be available to the patient within a week or two. And that's all because of technology that's developed for uh, for other you know machines and and, uh, and other disciplines being brought now into uh, medicine and being used uh, you know for these these approaches and these devices that are critical for um, uh, what we do here in cancer. So I think you're right. I think it's going to be very important, you know, to, to bring people who aren't really thinking about cancer into the fold. That's actually what we try to do here at the Cancer Center. So the whole goal of the Cancer Center, and we do that here at Yale, is we want to bring people who might not be working on a cancer-related problem, but are great scientists or physicists or chemists. And sure, here at Yale, we have a whole university to do this. We try to bring them together with with our with our clinical team, you know, once every month we meet with our chemists, you know, here at Yale, just to do that. To say, what chemistry do you have, and what problems do we have uh, about drugs? What drugs do we need? That's what we need more of: bringing groups together, you know, getting people to work as teams. And we're already doing that, but we can always do it better. Certainly, more resources uh, to fund that always help. And then, of course. I think this, this whole uh, initiative is making patients aware of clinical trials. I'd love for people who are hearing this to think, well, I'm getting good care and there, there's great cancer care throughout the country, but wouldn't it be great to think, is there a clinical trial? Is there something that I could do for this disease that might be a little bit better? And then by doing those trials, the thing that's really exciting is you see people benefit on these trials. Not always, but many of the trials with the immunotherapy and the, what we call targeted therapies, these, these drugs, many of them oral, that target specific pathways are really helping people. Drugs are getting approved at a record pace, and it's really helping people to live longer with a better quality of life, which is, of course, the ultimate goal, to help patients do better. Doctor, thank you so much for spending some time with us. I really appreciate it. Uh, my pleasure. Thank you. Dr. Roy Herbst is Ensign Professor of Medicine and Chief of Medical Oncology at Yale Cancer Center, the Yale School of Medicine and Smilo Cancer Hospital. When we return, GE is leaving Connecticut. We're going to take a closer look at why. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266, or you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Tonight, I hope you can join us for our big Wheelhouse Uncensored 2.0 event at the Tavern in downtown New Haven. We'll be talking news and politics as usual, but it'll be a bit more freewheeling, and you'll get some great food and drink as well. There are a very few seats available, so if you're interested in tonight's Wheelhouse Uncensored event, just go to our Facebook page to find out more and sign up. Hope to see you there. 
We've been hearing a lot about why General Electric decided to pack up and move from Fairfield to Boston. A lot of finger pointing going around. Some people are saying it's about high taxes or the business climate. Aaron Wren, senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, a contributing editor of City Journal, says it's not just that. And we've been hearing some of the same things from the company itself. Aaron joins us by phone now. Welcome to Where We Live. Thanks for having me on. So first of all, before we get into some of the reasons that you lay out for GE maybe leaving to go to Boston, let's just talk about this idea of the tax climate or the business climate. We've been hearing a lot of dire news about our state uh, around how friendly we are to businesses. How big a part do you really think that played in GE's decision? Obviously, they said it triggered their decision to look around for headquarters. So I wouldn't minimize the effect of taxes. Uh, The Tax Foundation uh, ranks Connecticut 44th in its tax climate. Uh, That's better than New York and New Jersey, but uh, still down there uh, near the bottom. Uh, I think where the business climate comes in is just looking at the consistent downsizings, consistent relocations out, and very little coming in. Uh, It's going to be tough, candidly. Okay, so that's one of the reasons given for them looking. But then once GE makes this makes this big announcement, the first thing the company is saying and a lot of pundits are saying is it's not really about the business climate after all. It's about the vibrancy of the place that they're actually going to. And, and you say this is part of a trend that cities are really becoming more attractive for companies like General Electric. Right. Uh, this is what puts Connecticut under a lot of pressure. If you think back to 1974 when Connecticut, uh, GE moved from New York City to Connecticut, right? companies were fleeing. New York, which was in a state of collapse, nearly went bankrupt later in the decade. Connecticut was kind of a low-tax environment then, but there was just a stream of companies. Something like 100 Fortune 500 companies left New York during that era, and a lot of them ended up in Connecticut, right? And then during that that era, you probably wouldn't have moved to a Sunbelt city like Dallas or Atlanta or Charlotte. Uh, These were not the business centers that they are today. Fast forward, New York is back. It's a gleaming uh, metropolis, highly desirable. Business is booming here. It's safe again, et cetera. So businesses aren't leaving New York. They're coming to New York. And the same thing is happening in Boston. It's happening in Chicago. And this has created a very different climate. There's no more exodus for Connecticut to just tap into. In fact, if anything, the flow is going the other way from places like Connecticut. Well, you're saying some of the things that really did define, though, the 70s in New York. The fact is there was a suburban ideal, not just as far as corporate headquarters, but still for America. A lot of people moving to subdivisions in the country. And in part, that was because a city like New York wasn't a terribly safe place. So the cities have gotten that stuff back in order. And then uh, it's more attractive to people. It's also about, though, from from what I understand, Aaron, uh, the vibrancy surrounding young people, entrepreneurs, Uh, universities, that there's something that cities have to offer that no matter how great you may build up a a good small city like New Haven, it'll just never have the the type of capacity that a New York or Boston will have. Well, I think there's a lot of potential in New Haven, actually. Uh, So I don't want to sell short just because it's smaller. There are smaller cities. Madison, Wisconsin is thriving, uh, for example. But the world is different today. The economy is different today. Um, We don't have these large, vertically integrated corporations anymore. We have a globalized, distributed, networked economy. It's an innovation economy. It's a tech-driven economy. So the corporate campus model, where you bring everybody out to this bucolic setting, 
and they're kind of cocooned away in nature from everything else so they can focus on doing work for the firm, that model is not necessarily a great fit for today's more complex environments, which require a lot of interaction with other people, right, with other firms, uh, with universities, with business services people. Those types of diverse environments, uh, like cities, uh, have a lot of appeal in a world that is this complex. And then, of course, as you note, um, there's the, the additional point that younger people haven't en masse moved to the city, but are certainly much more likely to live in the city than they were before. Even a place like Cleveland, which has been in huge decline for years, added 4,000 new downtown residents, a lot of them young and in their 20s. And those are the people who know the leading edge stuff like iPhone development. Mm -hmm. So if you want to tap into the latest and greatest tech skills, you need to be able to access that labor force. And that's some of the reason that companies are planting a flag downtown, even if not entirely moving there. Of course, the thing that you note, though, is this is the trend in the Northeast or in Chicago, in some places uh, in the North where the cities are seeing a little bit of a resurgence. There's still the uh, suburban campus culture all across the Sun Belt, and and that's a region of the country that's been stealing a lot of our jobs, too. Right. I want to stress the suburbs are not going away, right? The suburban office park is not going away, Uh, but... It may be going away in places like Connecticut and New Jersey, which are very high-tax, bad business climates. Uh, There are a lot of office parks being constructed in places like Houston and Dallas. Houston, ExxonMobil is building a 10,000-person campus in suburban Houston. Toyota is going to be building a big campus in suburban Dallas. If you want a suburban environment, you're probably going to move to a Salt Lake City. You're going to move to a Charlotte, a Raleigh, a Nashville. You're not going to move to Connecticut or New Jersey or places like that, unless you need to be in that region or be very near to a New York or a Boston. Uh, So that puts a lot of extra pressure on Connecticut. It's getting hit from one end by the resurgent downtown and by the other by these business centers, global business centers like Dallas that just didn't even exist as a concept in the 70s. Of course, the idea of suburban in a place like Salt Lake or Houston, which are so sprawling and you have the ability to build almost anywhere, that's a very different reality than here in Connecticut, where every single little town has its own uh, municipal structure. And if you moved 30 miles outside of Hartford for something, you'd be in another state already. I mean, we're just geographically challenged compared to a lot of the cities that are out west and down south. And there's a very anti-development mindset uh, in New England. Uh, I used to live in Rhode Island. Now, Rhode Island is also uh, economically struggling, but housing costs in Rhode Island are actually pretty expensive. It, you know, New England is not a cheap place to live, even despite some of the economic challenges that it has. And in part, it comes from an economic development and development, real estate development mindset that is very oppositional to things being done. And people don't want to come in and build. They don't want to come in and deal with this this hostile climate, particularly, as you point out, from some of these towns, which are the dominant feature of New England. Okay. In the last couple of minutes we have left then, Aaron, so help us set a blueprint here. People in, in Connecticut are wondering, how do we make sure that the GEs of today don't leave in the future or that other companies will come and decide to locate here in our little state uh, situated between Boston and New York? What do you think Connecticut needs to do? couple things. First, you need to work on the tax and business climate. Uh, that can't be ignored. Secondly, Connecticut does have some urban centers. Hartford, 
it's got New Haven, it's got Bridgeport. These places have not seen the resurgence uh, that others have, but some of them have good transit access to New York City. I would look at how can you um, develop those in a better way. There's some challenges with that because, you know, urban renewal was huge in Connecticut, which caused a lot of damage in those cities. Uh, but you've got some assets there in the urban space and then work on the business climate, too. Of course, the, this problem of the tax climate, this is a little chicken and egg, though. I mean, if we want to improve the tax climate, that might mean making choices about what we spend money on. And if we have to improve our public transportation system and we have to improve the way that we develop downtown, it seems, though, well, we got to find that money somewhere, right? Right. Well, you're probably going to have to make some cuts. And the truth is, when you're in a hole, it's hard to dig out. You have an unfunded pension problem there, too. So it's not an easy task, and it's not like you can just turn a few dials and be back where you need to be. Uh, you didn't get here overnight, uh, but you can, you know, over time make incremental improvements. I say try to improve incrementally at a rate faster than your, your aspirational peers are improving, and eventually you'll pass them up. Uh, a last minute for you here. Are we making too big a deal of this? I mean, obviously, GE has thousands of jobs. It has an enormous amount of prestige. They make a variety of different sorts of products, and they're on the leading edge of technology. But should we be, you know, weeping and, and gnashing our teeth as much as we are here in Connecticut, seemingly? Or should we be thinking, well, this is what, what tends to happen. Let's figure out a way to make the new GE here. Uh, some of both. I mean, I wouldn't uh, be blasé about what has happened with GE. I actually think it's a positive development. Uh, a lot of times in New England, civic identity is not as bound up with big corporations as it is in, say, the Midwest. Uh, so believe me, this is a message uh, to Connecticut, and it needs to be a wake-up call. But I think you're right. It's not going to be about luring GEs or other companies there. It's going to be about growing businesses in the state, and that's where the business climate is important. Aaron Wren is a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute and a contributing editor of City Journal. He's been writing about GE's move from Fairfield to Boston. Aaron, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you. This topic is one of the things we'll be talking about tonight at Wheelhouse Uncensored. It's a really cool event that's happening right in New Haven, which is one of the best small cities in America, don't you know? It's at the Tavern. We'll be talking news and politics. Of course, Colin McEnroe will be there with me. If you want to take part, go to our Facebook page to find out more. Very limited seating available for our event tonight, and we do hope to see you there. It's uh, after work, and it should be a lot of fun. Our program is produced by Lydia Brown and Tucker Ives. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. The digital editor for WNPR's Heather Brandon. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. I'm John Dankosky. This is Where We Live.